Welcome to the Mortgage Vault podcast hosted by Voltage. Voltage is a mortgage automation company that helps mortgage lenders and servicers reduce the time and cost to close and board mortgages. Mortgage Vault podcast is for mortgage industry professionals who want to stay ahead of the curve. Every week you will hear from experts, thought leaders and legends on what's next in the mortgage industry. All of this with just one goal in mind that you stay on top of your game. So, sit back, relax and enjoy this episode of Mortgage Vault. Hey everybody, it's Murli Dhirupati, CEO of Voltage and your host today. Voltage is a mortgage automation software that helps you produce and service more loans doing less work. Welcome to Mortgage Vault podcast. All right, uh, good morning everybody. Today we have a very special guest with us has not only founded one of the largest mortgage lending institutions in the United States but also transformed it into the most successful VA lending institutions in the country with a customer base of more than 1.25 million customers we are extremely delighted to have mr stanley c middleman as our guest today stan is the founder and ceo of freedom mortgage corporation a full service mortgage bank that is ranked in the top 10 mortgage originators nationally with an experience of more than 30 years in leading one of the most successful mortgage companies in the country uh, he is undoubtedly one of the foremost authorities when it comes to everything mortgage in the country so thank you so much for joining us today stan and uh, i'm really looking forward to this interview oh, it's a pleasure to be here thank you so uh, so stan as it stands today uh, freedom mortgage is uh, of course one of the largest loan originators and mortgage refinancing companies in the country but as a first generation entrepreneur myself i'm really keen to hear your story of how did you actually how how did this whole thing start like tell us about how you got started and what are some of the key turning points in your journey over the last 30 years in making freedom mortgage what is it today well it, it might be too big a question <laughs> um the, but the the reality is is you know in life the first thing you worry about is feeding your family and making a living and uh early in my career i was more focused on that type of activity um and as time went by uh we were able to create customers and then more customers uh and get better at it and build the the critical mass necessary to be successful uh in this industry. At the end of the day, I think uh what you have to think about from my perspective anyway was that you have to deliver products and services that are valuable to the consumer. And if you can do that with enthusiasm and energy, then everything else becomes fairly tactical. uh and that becomes the underlying responsibility of the organization and i think that that's true with us at freedom uh ultimately since we started in business we were trying to deliver products and services that would be important to the consumers that we dealt with and ultimately owning a home leveraging your financial assets uh the greatest of which probably is your home and being able to put a small amount of down payment uh into an asset and have it levered you know many 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 times over uh and that becomes a great system for building wealth 
And the premise was that we thought we could help people build wealth, own their home, and have the ability to someday uh, have a big nest egg that they could retire with. And that, that philosophy really has stayed with us the entire time we've been in business. Uh, I guess when you got the information on us, we were at uh, 1.25 million customers, but today we're over 1.7 million customers and still growing. So, um, you know, our expectation is that uh, we're on a journey. Um, the first 30 years have been fun. Hopefully the next 30 years will be at least that much fun. Amazing. Amazing. And I like it that you said that the first 30 years have been fun and then you're looking forward for more fun. That's really good. Great. Uh, thank you for that. Now, uh, 2020, I believe, is the 30th anniversary of Freedom Mortgage. Am I right? 2020 was... Was, the, was your 30th anniversary, 30 years you yep. completed 30 was. years in 2020. So, of course, you know, mortgage industry is notorious for companies falling by the wayside after a few years, right? So they somehow are not able to scale. So they shut down or they get acquired. But... And so completing 30 years and still growing strongly is quite a feat. So what do you think are some of the factors that contributed to the resilience? Of course, you mentioned one thing, which is about uh, creating value. Beyond that, are there, are there more things that are, that are successful, that are key to your resilience? So I, th I think uh, it's a couple of things. One, uh, we try and, and not make markets, but rather exploit the markets that are available to us. Uh, and I think that's important. Sometimes uh, companies have some success and they become uh, impoverished by their own riches. That success that they have leads them down trails that they probably shouldn't go and they become deluded into believing that uh, they made that happen. And it's been my experience that uh, not only do you have to work hard and be smart, because everybody works hard and everybody's smart, uh, but you also need an opportunity. And you have to recognize that that opportunity um, is more title than it is consistent. So opportunity doesn't always exist. It comes in and goes out more like the tide. Um, and I, if that's your point of view, recognizing when the tide is coming in and when the tide is going out um, can keep you drier um, and it can help you uh, be more successful. So it's a combination of being in the right place at the right time and understanding where you are in the business cycle. Uh, all those things are pertinent. If you want to be resilient, you have to not shoot yourself in the foot. So um, we have never gotten too caught up in it's us that made this happen. Mm -hmm. I think there have been a sequence of events um, that we have been a part of and have been prepared to take advantage of as the opportunities came to us. Our business is extremely interest rate sensitive. And one of the things that made us successful is that we've always had a long view of our business and we've been riding a wave of interest rates down since we started in business. Uh, so beginning in the, in the mid 80s, uh, interest rates were probably at their all time high. And we rode them all the way down to today's 
all-time lows. So the opportunity has been there for us repeatedly. But why have we survived when others have failed? Well, one of the things that happened is uh, you had institutions like the savings and loans when we talked about this notion that interest rates are falling and we're riding this wave down. Uh, there were a lot of people that said when interest rates were 10%, they can't possibly go any lower. Um, and they had come down off their peaks at 21 and they weren't willing to accept the possibility that interest rates would go lower. That tied with law changes and tax changes uh, and capital recognition changes really took the group that up to that time was the leaders in this space, the savings and loan, out of the mortgage space. And at that time, that mortgage space fell to the commercial banks. So through the early 2000s, um, that business that was in the hands of the savings and loan passed on to the commercial banks. Meanwhile, these entities, these small independent mortgage banks had a percentage of the market share that grew when savings and loans went uh, out, but didn't become as dominant as the commercial bank. However, came the next crisis um, and interest rates continued to go down. Property values had gone up and then they fell down. And in that massive correction, there were a lot of companies that failed, but the companies holding the most of that risk were the commercial banks. So the larger commercial banks holding a lot of that risk suffered uh, far more than the smaller independent banks that tried to offload a lot of that risk. And I think the, the better job you did of managing your risk in those environments and understand the property values rise and fall, interest rates rise and fall, and understanding the impacts of those and not clinging to a philosophy they can't go lower, they can't go higher. Property values can't go up or can't go down because the claim was, oh, property values will never go down. So whenever the word never comes into play in the common vernacular of your industry, that's when it's time to get out or to pare down or to get tight or to find risk havens. Uh, and that's exactly what we've done. So we didn't really take on um, uh, interest rate risk of interest rate falling uh, in the 90s and you know all the way through or get married to the concept that property values will always rise uh, in the 2000s. And by not getting too attached to any of these tidal forces that impact our business on a cyclical basis, we've been able to remain resilient and to, to not have too much exposure to any one risk at any one point in time. Great, that's really, you know, lot of lot of actually insights over there and uh, and and actually if i reflect on it there's a lot i think we can apply to what i'm trying to build right on on our side i think there are a lot of learnings i think to some extent we can take even beyond lending itself right thank you for that now uh, so of course you completed 30 years in 2020 at the same time, 2020 was a difficult year, to say the least, given the whole COVID situation, right? So I want to know what changes you did uh, in your organization to, 
to of course you know one is to take care of the change that has happened right with with all the restrictions and everything and also to capture the opportunity through particularly for the mortgage industry so i i think that first of all it was a very sad year um and everybody knows uh people that they lost and uh won't be moving forward with us uh and they're going to be missed uh so that i mean that's the tragedy of this past year is overwhelming um from a business standpoint they, there were opportunities uh that really weren't available to us 10 years ago if we had been accosted by this pandemic pandemic 10 years ago or even 5 years ago i don't think that we would have thrived in it the way we did this time uh the reality is the exposure to this work from home change was one that we were able to live with and take advantage of uh and one of the reasons that we were able to is the the vast acceptance of broad based accessibility to internet the the worldwide accessibility to the internet creating meetings like this one uh and being able to yeah. tether your personnel uh to reach out to folks to be able to work your customer relationships uh to be able to do all the things that we needed to do uh would not have been possible without uh, the robust internet access of our society and i think that 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 probably is the underlying reason that we've been able to succeed um so many of our our disaster recovery plans that were already in place uh and that we used really relied on the internet and a loss of the internet would have been devastating um combined with this pandemic the work at home theory really wasn't so bad because you're able to use the the internet to your advantage and mitigate some of the lack of in-person meetings uh and even though uh creating new relationships uh and extending through networking was probably not as good managing existing relationships uh and managing workforce objectives was not very difficult in fact it was very efficient If anything I think we had um some overwhelming business success uh one the opportunity arose because there were lower interest rates but but two we were able to exploit those interest rates uh in an in an environment that lent itself to our success because we had already previously dealt with disasters so we knew how to recover from hurricanes and from snowstorms uh fires mudslides and that kind of experience set us up to be able to turn take the whole uh universe of population where on a thursday we were 100% work from office on the following tuesday we were 98% work from home so we were able to do that effectively and swiftly because the processes the the documented steps and procedures were already in place for us to follow and that's what we did and we had an outstanding group of facilities and uh IT and technical support that were just uh, you know terrific uh they were really superheroes in this event amazing yeah 
you know what you said you know just now the one of the last thing that you just mentioned really caught my attention like from 100% office on a uh you know on a thursday or friday to 98% work from home three days down the line that's really something right amazing now uh now that brings me to the next question right so in the valley they say uh culture eats strategy for breakfast right so essentially culture is very very important or culture etc so my question to you is uh, of course you know uh the whole scenario the technology enabled you to work from home but uh, what did it do to your culture or rather what did you do to make sure that uh, your organization culture is maintained or even before that how would you describe your org culture and then through this whole pandemic situation and work from home how did you ensure that you are able to maintain that culture So one of the largest management challenges that is faced and probably the greatest part of my responsibility is keeping the workforce aligned and everybody moving in the same direction. Uh by definition that's the responsibility of the CEO uh and his direct reports and in the you know a scalar chain of command um one one would expect that this one reports to that one and you end up with almost like a phone tree from a elementary school class right um and you know we call that scalar chain of command but i think that uh the reality becomes this if your number one responsibility is keeping the workforce aligned and moving with purpose towards your goals and objectives and ambitions uh it's really important that they are tangible and real to the people that you're asking to achieve them so i felt that the number one thing that we needed to do was create connectivity so we created a series and sequence of daily meetings and we started there mm-hmm. and those daily meetings that i ran uh met with 40 people the 40 top executives of the company uh each and every day for an hour uh and we did that for months on end while we dealt with solving all the issues that were new to us because there were a whole bunch of new issues that we had never dealt with and we needed different types of people to interact that perhaps didn't interact as normally as previously in addition to that we needed to make sure that every other employee was not going on vacation but were pulling their weight and they were working So we had a responsibility to a make those people busy, b have them have access to the tools that they needed to do their job, uh the right equipment, the right internet accessibility, so on. Um and then we needed to keep them aligned. And I felt that the the most important thing was to provide purpose. So we did a lot to create purpose inside the organization. We had a lot of charity drives. We raised a million dollars for Feed America. We did a backpack drive for the USO so that folks were doing things that were bigger than themselves. Their day-to-day business, and we tried to drive this point home on a regular basis, is helping people lower their interest rates or to solve their problems if they were having trouble making their payments. And we really made those two events missions. uh of the organization 
where everybody was involved in one of those two things. We were either helping people that couldn't make their payments or we were helping people get their payments lower so that they would have more cash flow uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. And it was our own relief bill uh, to help people uh, to stimulate the economy. And it was really important. And we became essential workers uh, to these people. And we, we did an awful lot of fantastic things. I mean, we were, I think we, we were one time taking 35,000 phone calls a day from people that couldn't make their payments. Um, you know, from a normal standpoint where we would have, you know, a couple of thousand. Um, we, we also uh, were creating, I guess we were doing in one group alone, like 35,000 new loans a month. Um, when prior to that, it was, you know, in the single digit thousands. Um, and, uh, you know, we're probably up to this month. We, we set an all time record at 16 billion for February in a short month which is uh, an awful lot of new loans made. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, probably 70 odd thousand uh, new loans were issued from Freedom Paper this month. So uh, we're doing an awful lot every day. Um, and the, the work we're doing is important and the customers we're doing it with is important. So it goes back to that same adage that I shared with you about our early in my career, we want to bring people value to their lives. We want to help them uh, do things that's important. And we want the people that are doing that delivering, uh, being that service provider to understand that they have purpose and what they're doing is important. So we had to meet with them every day. And I personally uh, put out a, a message like this once a week uh, where I communicated with all the personnel in the company uh, every week uh, and let them know what was going on. and just gave them another source of, of news and uh, a, a better connection to their purpose. Great. Thanks. Now, I want to understand, you already talked about how the whole internet connectivity was very, very important for everybody and of course, Freedom Mortgage to be able to adapt to the COVID situation, right? But beyond internet and connectivity, I want to understand uh, what are the key technologies that you think are key to the success of Freedom Mortgage, you know, so far and even going beyond? Like, what are some of those technologies that you are really uh, thrilled about that you, you're anticipating that, that you think can make a difference to your business? Well, I'll tell you, the first technology that I really got behind was that in 1986, or 80, yeah, I guess it was 86, we had a typewriter that had one line of memory. <laughs> and that was probably the greatest single thing that I had ever seen in my lifetime up to that moment. And it made typing out the disclosures and information and requests so much easier. And we went from armies of typists using carbon paper and whiteout and correct-to-type to using typewriters that had a line of memory. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, then the, when we were able to use a fax machine and share copies of information almost live, I thought that was a tremendous technological development. Um, although many people have never even seen a fax machine that are 
in the business community today. So um, I think the point that I'm trying to make is I'm excited about all the technology that's at our fingertips, you know, the AI and the, the use of portals and uh, creating the opportunity for folks to be able to self-serve themselves. But I, when I think about technology, I don't necessarily think about any one technology being game-changing because I believe that unlike the opportunities that come to our business, technology is cumulative and that one technology stacks on the next, which stacks on the next. So when I think about technology, I think about not getting painted into the corner hmm. and not being stuck or committed to any particular technology, but by using and leveraging those technologies to move us from where we are to where we could, could be without becoming obsolete. So many people you know, in my career, and you talked about companies that went out of business, sometimes they got themselves into a corner where they invested so much money in technology yeah. that they couldn't recover from the investment when that technology was obsolete. And the change in that technology happened so fast that you can't recover from that. And then the service that you provide, remember you have to provide goods and services to the consumer. And if those goods and services suffer because you were married to a technology, you now become not the leader, but you're the back of the pack. So you can go from the front of the pack to the back of the pack without ever having gotten to the front. Because by the time you delivered your technology, somebody else has already leapfrogged you. So I don't try and get married to technology. What I try and do is use the tools at my disposal to become effective at delivering value to my consumers. Got it, got it. Yeah, so one of the things, though I come from the technology side, one of the things that I learned early on is, Technology for the sake of technology will only lead to disaster, right? Something that I learned early on. And I, I see a lot of wisdom in what you say about not painting oneself into a corner by, by tying yourself closely to something. Yeah, well said. Now, uh, Stan, I, I want you to kind of, you know, uh, make some projections, right? So. Uh, I want to know what what are the key trends that you see for 2021 and maybe a little beyond as well. Uh, how do you see the market shaping up over the next one year, right? Be it on uh, uh, on new originations or be it on refinances or be it on interest rates. Uh, what what are your projections for the next one year? Kind of back to our discussion on technology. Um, the need for personnel is going to go down. The cost of personnel has been falling and will continue to fall. Um, we are going to continue to have goods and services produced for less. Um, and the expense to produce is going to go down. And as that expense to produce goods and services goes down um, and becomes more efficient and we get better and easier delivery methodology, uh, for that product, those products and services, which we're already seeing, but if that trend is going to continue, I think that the real fear is going to be deflationary, not inflationary. 
And I would expect that through the course of the year, we'll see interest rates rise and a lot of uh, interest rate volatility as a result of this relief bill that's going to come out. Um, But as we get towards the fall, I would expect to see that relief bill end. I would expect uh, some of the unemployment will start to rise and sometime late in the fall, early next year, um, we'll start to see the need for lower interest rates. And I would expect that uh, this year's volume uh, in mortgages, at least, uh, will be uh, fairly robust because rates are still fairly low. And there's a lot of people with interest rates that they'll be able to refinance and lower those interest rates. A lot of people will buy homes. I think there's some pent up demand for that. I think you'll see some of the single family rentals become properties that are sold. Uh, Some of the people that are renting those properties will buy those properties. Uh, Some of them will just be sold to others. Uh, So I think you'll see that inventory come on. I think you'll see builders get more permits and more houses built. And I think they'll start to, to get that ball rolling. And I think what that'll do is as the vaccine starts to take hold and people feel less uh, prisoners in their home, uh, that the more of the existing housing stock will start to rotate. And people that uh, move into the one home will then create a move up buyer into another home uh, and so on, or a move down buyer uh, and so on down. So I I think there's going to be opportunities for uh, velocity and movement in real estate So I think there's going to be a lot of purchase money activity. I think there's going to be some more refi activity. Probably uh, that $3 trillion number wouldn't surprise me. But I think that uh, the interesting thing uh, for loan originations in 21, uh, I think the interesting thing is going to be 22. I expect 22 and 23, uh, particularly uh, the second half of 22, maybe the second three quarters in the first couple of quarters, if not all four quarters of 23 to be very robust. I expect the economy to slow. I think unemployment will be higher and interest rates will need to fall. And we could see a four or four and a half trillion dollar annual loan origination uh, period uh, pop up in one of those years and be on the way to that. I I think that uh, we'll see property value appreciate I think uh, property values will continue to go up uh, over the next couple of years uh, and possibly significantly. And depending how high those property values go, uh, will determine what the future correction will be. So again, a big part of my job is understanding that there are tidal effects in our business and you have to be sensitive to what those effects will be. Now, I will also give you the disclaimer that uh, historical events are not a <laughs> indicator of future events. Uh, and uh, I could be completely wrong. So, but uh, that's my point of view as I'm sitting here today. Great. So, you know what, Stan, we will actually, you know, put these numbers down and I'll connect with you again in a few months. And I want to review these, right? I'll actually request for a revisit of this maybe in a year's time for sure. Right. Happy to do so. <laughs> Thank you. Now, um, now I, at this point, I want to get a, maybe a little personal and I want to ask you, what is the reason behind your own personal success? Of course, Freedom Mortgage is hugely successful, but I want to understand what, what is the secret behind your own success, both in your 
professional life and personal life? Well, I, I think that you have to be sensitive and aware of what's going on around you. Right? If, if you don't know the who and what and why of what's happening, uh, whether it's personal or professional, uh, I think you get left behind. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have a, a wonderful wife and a couple of nice kids. Uh, and now I've got a couple of uh, grandchildren and uh, being in touch with them and understanding what's going on in their lives, I think is important. Um, but, you know, professionally, I, I think at the end of the day, it's that sensitivity and awareness. Where are we today? What are the factors that are causing where we are today? What are the factors going to shape tomorrow? And creating that ability to see around the corner, I think is important. Mm -hmm. uh, not having the ability to anticipate what today's events are going to cause tomorrow uh, kind of holds you back from being successful. And uh, you don't have to be right, but you have to be directionally sound. You don't have to be right, but you have to be directionally sound. Great, great, really nice report. Thank you. Um, finally, I, I want to ask you uh, this more for uh, the youngsters and millennials in the audience. Uh, see, today's youngsters, millennials, they have a lot of choices in terms of their career, right? So there are many industries, many roles, new upcoming roles that they can actually get into. My question on that to you is, uh, do you think uh, mortgage industry is something that uh, that can provide the millennials a long-term career, right? And uh, is this uh, and on what would your advice be for somebody who is starting in this profession, like you know, be it a loan officer, be it a mortgage processor or an underwriter? What would your advice be to them? Well, so uh, I speak often to college-age kids, uh, you know, uh, fairly regularly. Um, and one of the things that I try and point out is that life is a series of phases. Um, and in order to become successful, um, you have to pass through the various gates, right? It's almost like skiing down a slope, right? You just have to go in and out and you have to make sure you hit all the gates. Um, and the, tr the truth is, um, the first thing you have to do is you have to master your ability to perform tasks. And it doesn't really what matter um, what industry you're in, you're going to have to perform tasks. And prior to that, and one of the things that I really stress when I'm talking to college kids, but it really applies to young people starting in their careers just as well, First, you know, prior to being able to complete a, a task, you have to accumulate a series of skills. So you have to become proficient with your technology. You have to understand how to use all the tools that are at your disposal. You have to understand uh, how to speak to people. You have to be articulate. You have to know your math. You have to be able to move through all the, that skill accumulation that gives you the tools to perform the tasks that you're now being asked to perform. And then you have to go about the business of performing those tasks and then learning how to perform them efficiently on a personal basis, how to go about being good at delivering value to a consumer 
or value to your employer to deliver to a consumer or their, their stakeholders, whoever it may be. You have to effectively deliver that value proposition um, through performing tasks. And after you've uh, become proficient at performing tasks, you then have to be able to develop the tactical expertise to help others deliver those tasks and achieve a broader goal um, and a series of, of uh, narrow initiatives that are more tactical in nature. Um, and then once you've achieved that uh, tactical expertise, then you can begin your foray into the strategic. So I've just taken you through 20 or 30 years of someone's career um, and, the, and with a, an emphasis on the first 10 or 12 um, that you really need to do. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in, what career you choose. Those same things apply uh, universally. So when I was talking to my children about this, I told them they had to get good training. So you need to make sure that your, your early opportunities in your career, whether it's self-taught and you get lots of opportunities so you can fail a lot, because that's what self-taught means, or you're working it for somebody else where they're gonna teach you how to fail less spectacularly um, and uh, have smaller failures and, and smaller wins and how to accumulate the, the confidence that comes through accumulating small victories. And one of the things that's paramount uh, to the beginning of your career is the development of that confidence and not false confidence where, oh, you say, I'm great, I'm great. My parents told me I was great all my life. I'm great, I'm terrific. Now I'm talking about real confidence through accomplishment where I did this, 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 and this and I know I can do this. I don't need you to tell me I can do this. I know I can do this. And that, that sense of confidence that comes through accomplishment that is acquired through training and success at, at uh, performing tasks and then creating a tangible tactical decision-making to do it more efficiently and to teach others, that's the, probably the jump off start. Really great, Stan. Uh, I think probably I'll just play this out to my own employees, like youngsters who join join us, right? So you really put it so nicely in terms of uh, how it's important to have skills and be able to deliver tasks and then go from there and be efficient about them. And then over a period of time, be more strategic, really nicely put. And... Uh, I think probably there's no better way to kind of uh, close it, close this particular interview than this. Really, you know, first of all, thanks a lot for actually taking this time and, uh, and sharing your insights. There is a whole lot that I personally learned and I'm sure this would be amazingly, you know, um, useful and enlightening for the audience of this particular podcast. So first of all, thanks a lot. And, uh, uh, I hope you also had, uh, you know, I, I hope you also liked sharing, sharing these insights and be part of this podcast. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. So there's still one last question though, and that would be if I were to ask you to recommend maybe a couple of people who, who I should have on this podcast, you know, 
who would they be? Can you give me a couple of names that that I should have? Well, um, Sanjeev Das, who runs Caliber Mortgage, uh, is a bright and insightful person with uh, uh, a wide ver- uh, variety of experiences and expertise. Uh, and I've I've been on panels with him in the past, uh, and his insights are are well thought out. Uh, Jay Bray, who is the CEO of Mr. Cooper, uh, is also a, a, a very responsible leader, uh, has done a great job. Uh, he's taken a publicly traded company whose stock was uh, not trading well uh, and it was acquired and has helped rebuild that, and, uh, get it up to where it's, where it's really a uh, pretty good investment for folks. So uh, I think he's got a lot to be proud of. And he's, he's also very thoughtful. Uh, experienced, savvy leader. Great, sounds good. I sure I'm going to reach out to both of them and try to have them on this podcast. So thank you so much, Stan. It has been an honor talking to you and uh, listening to your insights. And uh, I, you know, I'm sure you know our audience will find this really interesting. And I'm sure I'm going to come back to you and ask for your time once again sometime in the near future. And uh, apart from checking on those projections that you made, I'm sure there is a lot more that I actually I'm going to talk to you on on that next next interview. So once again, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you, Stan. Really nice talking to you, and I'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye bye.